Good morning. Thank you very much to the halls. And uh, yeah, it's great singing today and great to be with you this morning. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, I also sent Christmas cards. Every year I anguish about this decision of how to approach Christmas cards. So much so that if Carrie would let me, we would just stop doing them, but she won't let me. Um, because I can't send a Christmas card to one person from the church, because that looks bad. And so I decided to bring them. If you want my face in your house, you can pick up a uh, Christmas card, or you can draw on it. Um, or I think it's two-sided, so you can flip it around, and on the front page, or front of the card is just Robert, uh, if you want to just see him. Uh, that's fine, too. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone has a good Christmas this week. Um, Again, thankful to worship with you today. A reminder, we do have a Christmas Eve service on Friday, and I look forward to that. And it'll be a great time to, to worship. Um, Matthew chapter 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him. After listening to the king... They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to worship you today, Lord. And that's what church is. And that's why we come, to worship you. To worship the eternal and everlasting God of creation. Lord, and we thank you if we have the opportunity to do that. Whatever we've got going on in our lives whatever situations we're facing, that we can come together today for the simple task, yet profound task of worshiping you. Lord, we want to pray for uh, Edna, Jerry, and Lori, the Kluver family this week, the accident that Edna was in. Lord, we're thankful that she is okay. Lord, we pray for her. Lord, we pray for the people who were involved in the accident and for the young man who passed away. We pray for Mark and for his widow, Jessica, Lord, that you would be with her and the rest of his friends and family, Lord, during this incredibly tragic and heartbreaking situation. Lord, as we see the sorrow and 
grieving situations of life, Lord, we also rejoice as we hear this incredible news of this great report with Jackie's health, Lord. It's a miracle that what the doctors saw and were so certain was cancerous is not. Lord, we continue to pray for her and for other tests that are going to need to be done. Lord, for the doctors who are taking care of her. Lord, we pray for her and Dan and the rest of their family. Lord, we pray for safe travels for everyone who's going places for Christmas. Lord, for time with family. Lord, and as we celebrate Christmas, may we remember what Christmas is really all about. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus came into the world. Lord. Lastly, Lord, we pray for families of our military. Lord, especially those who have sons and daughters who aren't going to be able to be at home this Christmas because they're serving our nation. Lord, we pray for their families and for our troops. Lord, we pray for our time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Important days. There are two kinds of important days. There are the important days that you know are important at the time. And there there are the important days where you can only appreciate their significance in hindsight. A couple weeks ago, we had the anniversary of an important day in American history when we remembered the 80th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks on December 7th, 1941. That was an important day at the time. Other important days in American history. November 22nd, 1963, the day President Kennedy died. Of course, September 11th, 2001. Days that are so important that the people who lived through them know where they were when they heard the news. Important days that you know are monumentally significant When they happen. And that's also true of some days in our own personal lives. The day you get married is a day like that. The day your kids are born is a day like that. But as we begin our passage this morning, I want to talk for a moment about the days that matter, but that we don't necessarily know that they matter until after the fact. To give an example from history, June 28th, 1914. The heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary died. And that was a news story on that day. But to most people who paid attention, they didn't think it was going to be all that big of a deal, all that significant outside of Austria-Hungary. When in reality, that event was the spark that set off a chain of events that led to the outbreak of World War I, a war that still impacts the world today. The days that matter, that you don't know matter. The first time you ever heard the word COVID-19, you didn't know that that was going to totally turn our world upside down. And if you're like me, some of us wish we could go back to a time where we had never heard that word. Think about the day that inventions came about, the day that the light bulb was invented. People had no idea that the rest of the world was going to be changed. And it's always a fascinating thought to me that such significant days can be days where we don't know their significance at the time. And once again, that can also be true of certain days in our personal lives. 
One of the most important days in my life was February 20th, 2017. I sent a message to a girl on eHarmony.com who I thought looked cute. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea at the time that that was the first time I talked to my wife. Think about the day that a famous person is born. No one knows it at the time. A future president or a leading actor or a star athlete or the next great Nobel Prize winner could be in the process of being born this morning and we wouldn't know it. And I think of that with the events surrounding the first Christmas Eve. Human history was about to forever change. For people who lived in Bethlehem on that first Christmas Eve, their little town was about to be center stage to events that we'd still be talking about 2,000 years later. Events that were so significant that time itself is measured in proximity to them. Yet, for the average person living in Bethlehem on that first Christmas Eve, they would have had no idea. Think about that. One of my favorite newer Christmas songs of the last several years is a song from the Christian band Casting Crowns. The song is titled, While You Were Sleeping. And the song considers the world-changing event, Christ coming into the world, and how it happened on, for many people, just any other ordinary night. The song says, O Bethlehem, what you have missed while you were sleeping, for God became a man and stepped into our world today. O Bethlehem, you will go down in history as a city with no room for its king while you were sleeping, while you were sleeping. The world kept turning on the first Christmas, and over the coming weeks and months, people continued to live their lives. For the average person living at the time, that seems to be the most likely response to the advent of Christ. Unawareness. Obliviousness. But there were some who had heard of the birth of Jesus. You have wise men who sought this newborn baby out. You have King Herod who heard the news but was not overjoyed by the prospect of another king living in his territory. And you have Herod's priests and scribes, those who are most learned in the Old Testament, yet who would miss the significance of the moment. We see all of these groups in our passage this morning, and we'll look at the various responses to Jesus. And to summarize our three points, we see a competing king, an unbelieving priesthood, and the seeking wise men. And with that, we'll jump into our passage this morning, beginning with the first point, a competing king. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. First thing to note, the passage says, after Jesus was born. Matthew tells us about Mary and Joseph before Jesus was born. That's what we did last week. In chapter 2, he's telling us about after Jesus is born. And we don't know how long after Jesus is born that these events take place. Perhaps days, more likely weeks or months. We don't know for sure. I mentioned this last week, but Matthew does not give us a recording of the birth of Christ. The only gospel that does is the gospel of Luke in chapter 2. 
The passage mentions that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew introduces us to the location of Christ's birth here, but we'll see later in the passage it become more important. So Jesus is a newborn. Verse 1 also introduces us to King Herod. A few notes on Herod. Herod was the king of the territories that are pretty much mentioned during Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Places you hear their names in the Bible. Judea, Galilee, and then other surrounding territories. He had been appointed as a king by the Roman government. He ruled from around 37 B.C. to his death in 4 B.C. He's also one of two Herods in the Bible. This Herod dies when Jesus is very young. There's another Herod we see in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. That Herod is this Herod's son. A couple more brief notes. Something that's very important to the background of this passage. Herod was Jewish, but he was not an Israelite. His mother was not Jewish. His father was, but he was not ethnically Jewish. And that matters because it speaks to his ancestral pedigree. Keep in mind everything in connection with the birth of Christ. The Jews had long hoped for a Davidic king from the line of David. Not only is Herod not from the line of David, he's not related to any of the 12 tribes. And for this reason and others, all accounts seem to point to the Jewish people in his kingdom having absolutely hated Herod. He also wasn't popular because he was a brutal ruler. He was loyal to Rome, which was not a popular sentiment among Israelites who wanted an independent state. He built temples to pagan gods. He was brutal to his own family. He had his wife and two of his own sons killed, which seems to stem from paranoia that worsened later in his life. So, to summarize, you have a paranoid, murderous king who the Jews don't consider legitimate, and along comes Jesus. Think of all of the history that led up to the coming of Christ into the world. And he's born in the territory of a hostile king. It seems like inopportune timing, but it was the exact right timing. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Timing can be a funny thing. Just because something doesn't seem like it's the right timing doesn't mean it isn't. Sometimes something doesn't seem like it should be the best time. But it's the time that the Lord has. Continuing in our text. Verse 1 ends by saying that the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. The ESV uses the word wise men. The Greek word that, that comes from, which you might have heard in other places, is the word magi. They're basically astrologers, and astrology was pretty respected in Rome and in the ancient Near East at the time. The text says that they came from the East. That's most likely referring to Persia or Arabia or possibly Babylon. We don't know for sure. 
These wise men came from a place where they clearly had some familiarity with Jewish beliefs and messianic expectations. But, and this matters, the wise men themselves were not Jewish. Also, for the record, the Bible never says that there were three of them. It seems most likely that we get that number from the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The text says that the wise men came to Jerusalem. That makes sense. That would be the obvious starting place if you're looking for the Jewish Messiah. Jerusalem had been the capital of the promised land. And verse 2, the wise men say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When they mention seeing a star, once again, that's debated among scholars. Is it a natural phenomenon they saw? Was it something miraculous? I tend to lean more towards the latter. Cosmic signs were associated in the ancient world with births of kings, but they're led to Jerusalem. So in verse 2, when they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We might not read a whole lot into that. Because that's how we think of Jesus. But verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is not nearly as keen on the idea of a baby who has been born to be king of the Jews. Why? Because he's the king of the Jews. So he thinks. Now, for just a moment, let's remember the beginning of our time in Matthew, where we spent two weeks looking at the genealogy of Jesus. In showing Jesus to be the Davidic king, it's also showing Jesus to be the rightful king. And that is contrasted with Herod, who's a Roman-appointed king in a Roman-occupied territory and who's viewed as being an illegitimate monarch. So when the wise men ask about the king of the Jews, it strikes a nerve. Verse 3 ends by saying that Herod was troubled, And all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem is probably troubled because they have a tyrannical and despotic king who's unstable. And if he's not happy, probably no one's happy. And that leads us to our second point. An unbelieving priesthood. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Part of the significance of this fourth verse is that Herod is the king of the Jewish territories, but he has to assemble a team of advisors to respond to the wise men's question of where the Christ was to be born. And what that is showing is that Herod himself is not particularly well versed in the Old Testament. In calling together all the chief priests and scribes, it's probably referring to Herod calling together the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two leading schools of thought at the time. And so they direct Herod to the book of Micah, which Matthew quotes in the following verses. Meanwhile, they themselves miss the significance of the event. You'd think that the people who were most well-versed in the Old Testament would investigate what was claimed and seek out this baby. If they do... It doesn't seem like it leads to any sort of widespread belief among the priesthood. But they do know the Old Testament prophecy, and that's where they lead King Herod. Matthew 2, verse 5 and 6. 
They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And again, that's a quotation from Matthew, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which talks about the coming ruler to be born in Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Bethlehem is the city where Jesus is born. Because of the Christmas story, you've heard of it. Without the Christmas story, you'd have never heard of it. First century Bethlehem was very small. It's about six miles south of Jerusalem. It is mentioned in the Old Testament in conjunction with a few significant events. Jacob's wife, Rachel, is buried there. Ruth meets Boaz in Bethlehem. And most significantly, it's also the birthplace of King David. Where the text says Bethlehem in the land of Judah, that is reminding us of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Jesus' association with that tribe from which he is born. The prophecy says, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. That's basically saying that Bethlehem is otherwise pretty insignificant. But what gives it significance is what will happen in Bethlehem with God's redemptive plan. The text says, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, Bethlehem was very small and insignificant at the time Jesus was born, but something amazing was going to happen there. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you have ever been to Tampico, Illinois? I thought I saw a hand, but I did not. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a small town, smaller than Sister Park, in the northwestern part of the state. Tampico's claim to fame is that in 1911, a baby was born there who became America's 40th president, Ronald Reagan. He's what puts that town on the map. Nobody apparently has ever been there, but if you ever do go there, most likely it's to visit the birth site of Ronald Reagan. Jesus gives significance and meaning to Bethlehem. No one would really care about Bethlehem were it not connected to Jesus. But Jesus didn't come just to give meaning to a place. Jesus came to give meaning to your life. For a moment, let's remember the other birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1, you see all these people. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph. In Luke 2, you meet people like Anna and Simeon at the temple. All these people, what do they have in common? It's that their meaning and significance is directly tied to their relationship to Jesus. And that is meant to be true of our own lives. Our meaning and purpose are meant to be grounded in Jesus. Knowing him, living for him, loving him, making him known. Bethlehem is known because it's where Jesus was born. The cross is known to us today because it's where Jesus died. May we be known today because we're where Jesus lives. 
There was concern in Jerusalem from Herod and the people because they saw the threat of a competing king. In the following sections, and Lord willing, where we'll be on Christmas Eve, we'll see Herod's ruthlessness as he tries to wipe out the competition and kills anyone who could possibly be this baby Jesus. Herod didn't want a competing king, so he tries to kill everyone off. Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews, the rightful king of kings, the rightful king of the universe, and he's also meant to be the king of your life. But is he? Herod rejected his kingship and tried to have him killed. At the crucifixion, the Jewish leaders rejected his kingship and did have him killed. But we too so often reject his kingship. Herod didn't want another king in Jerusalem. But a sinful and fallen world is of people who don't want another king in their own lives. Herod was an illegitimate king who was too prideful and power hungry to know that there would be a rightful king. But again, that's what the whole world does apart from Christ. We refuse to acknowledge his lordship. So I ask again, who is the king of your life? Is it Jesus? Is it yourself? Is it your family? Is it your money? Is it your security? Is it your hobbies? We come to our third point. The seeking wise men. We've already met them in the story, but now we'll turn our primary focus to them. The wise men have come to Herod seeking where to find this new king of the Jews. You might question why would they go to such a brutal leader like Herod? It's possible that they simply didn't know how bad, bad Herod was since they didn't live in his territory. Herod opposes Jesus. His priests and scribes disregard Jesus, but the wise men have come seeking Jesus. Before they leave Jerusalem in search for Bethlehem, Herod requests that they let him know when they find this young Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I always imagine that almost like a cartoonish scene where he's got this like big evil smile on his face. Where the music in the, in the story changes because Herod clearly is lying and being disingenuous. It's like the grandmother in the Little Red Riding Hood, in Little Red Riding Hood, or like Ursula the Sea Witch in The Little Mermaid, pretending to care about Ariel. Herod pretends that he's interested in coming to worship Jesus. He's not. He wants to destroy Jesus. He's lying. The wise men depart for Bethlehem, verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Keep in mind that the wise men are not Jewish. They're pagan astrologers. And with that, let's zoom out of the story for just a moment. When we read any biblical account that's associated with Christmas... There are aspects of the story 
2,000 years later that are embedded in our culture. It's part of the story that Jesus was born in an inn and laid in a manger and that three wise men followed a star and came to him. With the idea of the wise men, it's so embedded in our understanding of Christmas and the Christmas story. It's such a normal part of the story to us that I don't think we consider how just absolutely bizarre it is that you have pagan mystics who are the first ones to seek out the newborn Jesus. That's weird. Matthew tells us about the wise men, and we see them nowhere else in the New Testament. It's not like Jesus does his first miracle, and poof, there's wise men there. It's not like when Jesus is at the cross that there's wise men in the crowds. On the first Easter, when the tomb is discovered to be empty, there's no star leading wise men to the risen Jesus. But they're the first ones on the scene when Jesus is a newborn. It's weird. And again, we're so familiar with it that I don't know if we really realize how weird it is. Astrology is pretty clearly forbidden in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4.19. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Or another example, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Yet here we have the wise men on the scene. Why? Why does Matthew tell us there are wise men? Two reasons. First, given that astrology is so strongly forbidden, and there's other passages in the Old Testament, and is continued to be frowned upon in the New Testament, I think Matthew mentions their appearance because it really happened. Because why on earth would you make that up? It's one of those things that I think gives internal evidence to the Scripture. When you see things that don't make sense to lie about. I made this point before at Easter. But the Gospels tell us that the empty tomb was first discovered by whom? By women. In first century Judea, women were not viewed as being equals in society. They could not give admissible testimony in court. It doesn't make sense that you would make up that women had discovered the empty tomb unless it was actually women who had discovered the empty tomb. But there's another very important reason why the wise men are in the story. The first people Matthew records seeking Jesus, finding Jesus, giving reverence to Jesus, are non-Jewish pagans. We take the idea of the wise men, we see it depicted in nativity scenes, it's, it's a quaint Christmas image. But what Matthew is once again doing is showing that Jesus is for the whole world. The gospel that Jesus brings is for the whole world. The light that Jesus gives is for the whole world. 
even for pagans who don't come from Israel and who have practices that are looked at as sinful. Jesus is for them too. There will be Jewish people who we get to in this section, who we've covered already in this passage, who are oblivious and apathetic. We see that throughout the gospel, people missing the point, people hostile to Jesus coming into the world. The people you would expect to recognize their coming king and messiah. But instead, it's the outsiders who first recognize that. This will foreshadow two things. Jesus, throughout his ministry, being rejected by the Jewish leaders when he is sent to the cross. And also Jesus' global mission when he sends his followers into the world to fulfill the Great Commission. To go into the world and make disciples. As D.A. Carson points out in his commentary on Matthew, the Apostle Matthew does not condemn or sanction the wise men for being astrologers. He's just mentioning that it happened. And that's important because what matters is that they've come to seek out Jesus. And a person can always seek Jesus just as they are. You don't have to clean yourself up and then go in pursuit of Jesus. You don't have to get all of your moral ducks in a row and then go and look for Jesus. That Jesus meets us where we are. And we come to him, to know him, to love him, and to believe in him. And when a person does come to know Jesus, when a person truly knows Jesus, that it is such a dramatic an impactful relationship that the person who truly knows Jesus can never again be the same. That a person who truly knows Jesus is changed. At the end of the passage, we see the reverence that the wise men have for Jesus. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it mentions worship, it's probably a little bit different than how we envision worship. It's probably more along the lines of prostrating themselves before a royal figure. But they're giving homage to Jesus. The gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh might seem like odd gifts to give a baby. We just had a baby. Those things weren't on our registry. But think of them less as gifts for a baby and more as gifts for a king. Even today, when heads of state visit, it's customary to bring gifts. Gold is universally valued. Frankincense and myrrh are resins which can be used to make perfumes that come from the East, which were also highly prized and valuable. Those were the gifts that these men brought to Jesus. The gift that Jesus would ultimately reciprocate back with was the gift of eternal life. In a world where many are oblivious to Jesus, where some denied Jesus, where others opposed Jesus, the wise men sought Jesus. And at the beginning of our time this morning, I talked of the significant days that we don't necessarily realize were significant at the time. The first Christmas, many didn't realize what had happened. 
But since that first Christmas, the rest of history has been turned upside down. It was easy to be blissfully unaware of Jesus as a baby. But what do you do with him as a man? What do you do with him as a teacher? What do you do with him as a prophet? What do you do with him as a savior? What do you do with him as Lord? Some will continue to ignore him. Some will continue to miss the significance of who he is. Some will continue to actively oppose him. But will you come to him and worship him? It might have been easy to dismiss a baby. But that baby grew and became the savior of the world. That baby grew and went to the cross. And that tomb was empty on the third day. What do you do with all of that? Will you continue to overlook the significance of Jesus and who he is? Or will you come to him and worship him as the Lord? People ignored and overlooked the significance on the first Christmas. But what are you doing with Jesus this Christmas? Because he invites you to come to him. He invites you to know him. He invites you to worship him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word in this day. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Lord, and may we, again, come and come before him and worship him, Lord. May we receive the gift that he has for us of eternal life through believing in him. In Jesus' name, amen.